Good morning, everyone. This is a very special time after not being together for these weeks to uh, have some sense of connection here this morning with the uh, with the uh, that in informal chat time. It made me kind of teary there for a bit. Uh, it's just really special to hear the voices. There were times when it sounded like furniture was getting overturned in the temple, but it was very good. And I appreciated the testimonies, very stirring, and these songs by Paul's family. So we're, uh, we're looking at Easter this morning, and our message is the gospel of the resurrection the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I heard someone give this greeting this morning, Christ is risen. And the response, of course, is he is risen indeed. That's the, a Paschal greeting that's heard among Christians around the world with, with variation. But it's such joyful news. And uh, Paul, or rather, uh, John, the Apostle John, heard this uh, from Jesus himself on the Isle of Patmos when Jesus revealed himself on the Lord's Day when the Apostle was in the Spirit. And he saw the glorified and glorious Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I'd like to begin with just a summary, a reflection uh, of the uh, resurrection story, starting on Golgotha, where the three crosses stood surrounded by a clamoring crowd of Jews, a group of Roman soldiers, and some devoted followers of Jesus. And in the center of all this commotion and horror was Jesus, crucified and suffering and dying. And the disciples heard Jesus cry, it is finished. They saw him die. And at some point, the crowds of onlookers dispersed. They were disturbed and exclaiming. One of the gospels says they were beating their breasts. And uh, they were arguing and discussing the unusual events of the afternoon, the darkness and the earthquake, and the very unusual man whose death they had witnessed. And I imagine the disciples stayed longer, standing in clusters, weeping. And eventually the disciples trailed mournfully into Jerusalem, deeply shaken, and their spirits crushed with grief. Some of the women waited longer, and they were still there when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and took Jesus from the cross. And they followed the men to the garden, carrying Jesus, where they reverently, gently placed Jesus', Jesus body in the tomb. And they saw that huge gravestone rolled into place. They went home and prepared spices and perfumes to add to the myrrh and aloes that Joseph and Nicodemus had already wrapped in the linen strips around Jesus' body. 
Jesus was dead. There was no question about that. Their master, their beloved teacher was in the tomb. It was unbelievable. Their hearts were broken. Besides their grief, what were they thinking? Here's one clue. The uh, disciples on their way to Emmaus were overtaken by a stranger who joined into their conversation. And he seemed blank about what had happened, and so they were reviewing it. And they said to the stranger, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. I think that offers us a window into the deep disappointment and confusion and uncertainty of the followers of Jesus after the crucifixion. They had been so certain, so sure. Three years before, Andrew had heard John the Baptist at the Jordan saying, Behold the Lamb of God. And something clicked for Andrew. And he promptly went to his brother, Peter. And he said to him, We have found the Messiah. And they, with the rest of the twelve, followed Jesus. They witnessed the water turn to wine. They saw the lame walk, the blind see, and the demon-possessed delivered from bondage and the power of the devil. They heard him teaching with power, and they saw his perfect, holy life. They were convinced he was the Messiah. And when Jesus asked the disciples, Who do men say that I am? Peter had declared emphatically, You are the Christ the Son of the living God, and now Jesus was dead. And instead of conviction, there was confusion. A very long Sabbath day slowly passed. And then Sunday morning, at the crack of dawn, the faithful women started for the tomb where Jesus was buried. And as they got closer, it occurred to them, that stone could pose a problem. It was a very large stone. But when they arrived, the stone was rolled away. Wait a minute. What is this? Stepping into the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe. They were alarmed. Don't be afraid, he said. You're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Tell the disciples. And that's when the first Easter celebration began. Can you imagine yourself in their place? Have you ever been in a desperately hopeless and scary situation, whether it's in some circumstance or health or whatever, and then there's a sudden dramatic deliverance so unexpected that it stuns you? And it takes a little to really understand what's happened. I thought about that beggar in the temple who had a problem. He was lame. He had been lame ever since he was born, all his life. He was unable to work like a whole man would and would surely wish to. And he couldn't get around by himself. He had to be carried. He was a burden to others. And begging was demeaning. But that was his lot. It was an unhappy, frustrating existence. And one day he saw Peter and John approaching, and he asked them for a donation. And Peter said, 
Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. Stand up and walk. And the lame man stood to his feet, and reality dawned. And then he was walking and leaping and praising God in the temple. In a moment, a lifetime of crippled living was upended, and he was well. He was hale and healthy. A stunning and sudden turnaround. Better yet, I believe his heart was upended too. I believe the faith that it refers to in verse 16 refers to the now former beggar, where it says, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom, we, whom you see and know. You know, I've thought about the stages of grief, shock and denial, pain and guilt, anger and bargaining, and so on. You've probably heard of them. There must be stages in this kind of joy as well. Shock, it can't be real. Could it be true? It must be true. Wow, how amazingly wonderful. And then celebration. The lame man whizzed through these stages pretty quickly, didn't he? But the disciples took longer than we can understand. I thought about the uh, angel's announcement to the shepherds when Jesus was born. And the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. And then for them, the joy came while they were in normal circumstances, out in the field, on a quiet night just ordinary things, and suddenly this joyful news, it was wonderful news, the Messiah had come. But after the resurrection, it went from deep grief and distress to a stunning deliverance and restoration. If there was a scale where zero was normal and ten was super wonderful joy, and minus 10 was super, super terrible uh, distress. The disciples went from minus 10 to plus 10. Christ restored to them glorious and alive the stunning joy of the resurrection. And Christians should experience the joy of resurrection as well. Maybe not on the scale of the disciples on that first Easter, but there comes a deep joy. And it goes from a negative distress to a positive joy as we realize our sinful condition and need. And then surrender and kneel before the Savior in faith believing and accepting the cleansing of Christ's blood and saying, I'm yours, Lord, not my will but thine be done. There's a deep joy that comes with that. And the same when we fail, when we sin, we confess, we repent, there's joy. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. And that joy can cool and we can... Gabriel called it a passive gratitude or passive attitude. 
the church in Ephesus was rebuked because they had left their first love. The church of Laodicea had too, and Jesus said they were lukewarm. And that joy, we have that resurrection joy when we stay uh, in that in that mode of surrender and to, to Christ and grateful for his provisions through his shed blood and through his resurrection. Now, resurrection is about more than joy. It confirmed that Jesus is who he said he was with power in Romans 1.4. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of Holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, not everybody believes even the evidence. You know, the chief priests, they mocked Jesus on the uh, cross and they said, if you come down, we'll believe in you. They were just mocking. They wouldn't have believed if he had come off the cross. They didn't believe when he rose from the dead. And there was clear evidence that he had. Some did. Some did believe. And Jesus' resurrection is a powerful step in the conquest and defeat of sin and the dark world of sin and the devil. There's a great turning of the tide that occurred at Easter. There's a powerful deliverance for the blood-washed saint. An earthquake in the kingdom of darkness, one life at a time. In Ephesians 2.1, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sin. In Romans 6, Verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For if he who has died has, for he who has, died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. It's the gospel of life with the living Christ that was preached all through Acts. The gospel of the resurrection. It's mentioned in sermons and testimonies nearly 30 times in the book of Acts. And people responded by the thousands at Pentecost on Paul's journey. A turning of the tide, the victory of Easter. We know the resurrection of Christ is so essential to our salvation. First Corinthians 15, uh, there's a section at the end there where Paul really addresses that. I'll just read a few verses. Verse 14 says, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, 
and your faith is also empty. And in verse 16, For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men the most pitiable. That's uh, from the New King James. Romans 4, uh, several verses there, beginning at verse 22. This is from the ESV. And he's talking about faith. And he says, That is why Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believed in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So we see uh, two parts to this salvation, a perfect sacrifice for cleansing, a satisfactory atonement for our trespasses, and a living high priest raised for our justification to administer this sacrifice. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that, if he might, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And several chapters later in Hebrews 4 verse 14 Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Mercy, forgiveness through Christ shed blood. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He was delivered for our trespasses, we read in Romans. And the second part, and to find grace to help in time of need the resurrection power, the help to live the holy life that he's called us to. In Romans 5, verse 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God's purpose was not just to forgive us our sins, to kind of wash us off and shine us up and then leave us floundering, unable to live a Christian life that we're taught in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament. And to live constantly in defeat, needing constant and repeated cleansing, no victory, no growth, and no fruit. No, we have a risen Savior who is alive and well and strong and able to help us. 
We falter. I falter often enough and need forgiveness, and God freely offers that. But he has provided grace to help in time of need. We don't have to stay in a life of defeat. When the risen Savior went to the Father, he sent his Spirit to minister to believers. He does not leave us orphans, helpless orphans. He taught in John 14, verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And when we sin, which we do, a risen Christ is interceding for us. We have a living advocate, intercessor, in Romans 8, verse 34. Who is he who condemns us? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And in Hebrews 7, verse 25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make, to make intercession for them. What a promise. Jesus is alive and at the right hand of the Father, interceding for each of his children. And he gives us life, the resurrection life. 1 John 5, verse 11, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And life comes from a risen Savior, not a dead memorial, not a dead one in a tomb. The resurrection offers us hope. It offers us hope here. It offers us hope for the future. Uh, Galen preached from 1 Peter, the first chapter last Sunday, and I'll just read a couple of verses from that first chapter. beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten to us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. You know, that, that truth is a comfort to us when we stand around an open grave at a funeral. 
That's a comfort to us. And Jesus said to us in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The resurrection confirms that Jesus keeps his word. There were a number of times where Jesus told the disciples that he's going to die. He's going to be offered up. One example is in Matthew 16, verse 21 that Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And there were other times where he mentioned it as well. And he did that. It, he did raise from the dead, just like he said. The disciples had gotten a little fuzzy on that. But that's a comfort to us. Life doesn't end at the uh, grave. He is coming. There is eternal life ahead. I'll be coming back for you soon to receive you unto myself. And he is coming also as a conqueror. In Revelation we read in 19, chapter 19, verse 11, or rather John saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns he had a name written that no one knew except himself he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with that, and with it he should that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. The resurrection was stage one of this spiritual battle. And, uh, you know, when Jesus was in the uh, garden and the chief priests and the captains of the temple and elders had come to him and with a mob, he said, have you come out as a, against a robber with swords and clubs? I was with you daily in the temple and you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. They were, God allowed them to do what they wished. And they did. And the Bible tells us the world is, the world is still under the sway of the wicked one. But that was the beginning. The, the Easter, the resurrection morning was the beginning of the end for the devil and sin. And there's an ongoing spiritual battle that we're a part of here. And it won't be until 
the end that there will be a final great victory over death and the devil and all wickedness and all wrongs will be set right. That is very sure and certain. That's a wonderful message, resurrection message. It's very personal to each of us who are Christians. It's, very, it's a wonderful message for the church, for believers. We don't have to be afraid in this world with the growing opposition that we see today around us in our society and world against Christianity, the mocking and scorn, the evil that's just becoming more and more open and blatant. We don't have to be threatened and, and ashamed. We're on the victorious side. We're on the right side. And in the end, this will all be vindicated, and those people who insist and who rebel, they'll be the ones calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. And we'll be the ones rejoicing with the resurrected, conquering Savior and Lord. Paul said in Romans 10, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a message of salvation. It's also uh, a call to missionary work. And we have a message. This is a message of great joy. It's a message of hope for somebody who is down at negative 10 in desperation or wherever anyone is on the, on the, in discouragement and despair with his life. It's a message of hope. It's a message of great joy when we accept and experience that resurrection deliverance and that resurrection joy. It would be a wonderful thing for all of our neighbors and everyone in the world to hear that. It's there for them. It's a message for us. And I think that our joy, our testimony in, this, in these disturbing times are a, a powerful testimony to uh, an anxious world. It's a message for us and our neighbors in Jerusalem. It's a message for Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus came. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And that life comes through the death and the resurrection. It wasn't a half-done job. It was a complete and total uh, deliverance offered to us that we can take advantage of and rejoice in. And that's our joyous message this Easter morning. May the Lord bless us all.